Well, we're coming into our, our last church history class. Um, no, we're not going to get up to, them to today, but we're at least hopefully going to get to a stopping point. But we are talking about the modern age coming toward the post-modern age that we're in right now. And um, we left off last time by talking about the Ryrie Study Bible. Um, how many people have heard of the Ryrie Study Bible? Okay, go. Um, Charles Ryrie. Uh, was uh, on the committee that we talked about before, on the committee for putting together the new international version of the Bible. And he had been a systematic theology prof at Dallas Theological Seminary for years. And Dallas is one of the more respected conservative seminaries in the United States, but they tend to have a bit of a party doctrine. There's, everybody is supposed to believe pretty much the same thing, which is not necessarily a horrible thing. It's just not what I was looking for when I was going to the seminary which is why I looked at like Trinity and Gordon-Conwell, who are the other two most respected evangelical conservative seminaries in the United States, and a little bit more uh, broader in terms of their, their diversity of theology. But he was the big uh, theology professor in a, in, a, in a seminary that is really big on having a party theology. So when I say for Ryrie to put together a study Bible for the people that agree with that theology, all of you can kind of nod, but at the time it's kind of like, oh, so the Pope put together his own study Bible for Catholics, is what, is what that means. More than 10,000 of his explanatory notes got put into a single NIV study Bible that came from an apologetically dispensationalist perspective. Remember when we talked about covenant theology versus dispensational theology? In dispensational theology, the world can be broken into various dispensations, various chunks of how history works, each one leading to the next one, and we're now in this, this church age, this age of grace, what have you. Not a bad way of looking at history. The covenant theology people ran in and said, no, it's totally a bad way. We think that history has been built into a series of covenants. So you still think it's been broken into distinguished segments. Anyway, if you're a dispensationalist, the Ryrie Study Bible, totally the Bible for you, written by the guy. But how do you want to look at it? We've had generalized study Bibles. We've had, just recently, we've been talking about um, liberal study Bibles that have come out, that, that come with things from a very scholastic but liberal perspective. Well, now the modern evangelical church, the NIV reading, uh, I want to be Bible-based-y kinds of evangelicals now have their own study Bible. And unless you want to cop an attitude about covenant theology, this is going to be a good one, and everybody was really excited about it. And it's since sold more than 2.6 million copies, so it was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty impressive for the day. 78 is also the same year that the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was created. And this was kind of important because, again, if you remember all the stuff that's been going on in the, in the 70s, remember we've had this pendulum swing back toward kind of a, a, a liberal perspective on things. 200 different evangelical leaders came together to sign this thing and to, to draft it and put it together and sign it. And they said, quote, we see it as our timely duty, given everything that's been going on in the 70s, to make this affirmation on the face of current lapses from the truth of inerrancy among our fellow Christians and misunderstandings of this doctrine in the world at large. Now, when I use terms like inerrancy, I probably ought to stop and re redefine them again. Inerrancy refers to the doctrine that the Bible, as it was originally written, 
was without errors. When God inspired it through Bible writers like Moses, Paul, it had no errors. Okay? Infallibility is another word that you'll hear a lot. Refers to the doctrine that the Bible, as it was originally written, was trustworthy in its spiritual direction. It's not going to lead you in the wrong direction. Can you see how those two can go together? Now, there are some people who hold to one but not the other. Who will say, oh, it, 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 yes, it has errors, but it's not going to lead you wrong. It can be infallible without necessarily being inerrant. Now, I would argue that there's a logical problem with that. Could you picture knowing that your map is messed up, knowing that your map contains errors, and yet people say it is absolutely infallible? It will never lead you in the wrong direction, though I know it's got wrong parts. Now, you could say it's not inerrant, and it's very close to infallible. It's not overly fallible. But to say it is not inerrant, but it is still totally infallible, the logician in me struggles with that basic concept. Because I'm like, no. If I know my GPS is going to mess up, and I know my GPS is going to mess up, I can never be entirely trustworthy on my, on my, in fact, my GPS got me to the wrong place on, on Friday when I was trying to go be with my mom. Yeah? I was going to say, I feel like you really have to define errors. Like You do! Ah, nickel for you after class. Because they did a series of articles uh, comprised of couplets of affirmations and denials specifically to do exactly what you just said. They said, we affirm that the Holy Spirit, uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit, are, are, the Holy Scriptures, I'm sorry, are to be received as the authoritative word of God. We deny that the scriptures receive their authority from the church. It's, it's the other way around. <laughs> or from any other human source. It's not that humans said that the scriptures are good, therefore that's what makes them good. We affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation, which is what some people will say. It's like, no, this is not revealed truth, but it's guys writing about revealed truths. We deny that it's, it depends on the responses of men for its validity. Because there are some people that say it only becomes revelation when you decide that it's revelation. The way you respond to it validates it. So we affirm that scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible. We, we agree that it's not going to lead you wrong. So that far from misleading us, it's true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. We deny that it's possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and yet errant in its, in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished, but not separated, logically. They aren't the same thing, but they can't have one without the other. So we affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual or religious or redemptive themes. Oh, it's, it's, it's okay to say that it's infallible in those, but clearly it's, you can't trust it in history. Yeah, yeah, you really need to. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by, and this is part of that definition you're talking about, Biblical phenomena such as lack of modern technical precision. Yeah, it's like, oh, no, it said it's small. Whereas in, in real life, it's only 0.3 microns. You know, small. The Hebrew word for that would be small. Hebrew word for thousand is heaps. So, I mean, not the most precise language. 
Irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, like when they say the sun stopped in the sky, the earth stopped spinning. You know, I'm sure that's the way it looked. That's the way he's describing it. But do you know scientifically what would happen if the earth actually stopped spinning? He didn't say that I am aware that scientifically the earth stopped spinning or the sun stopped in the sky. This is just the way he's describing it. It doesn't make it in error. Yada, yada, yada. He's using round numbers. Oh, it wasn't 40 years. It was 41 years. <sighs> round numbers. That does, if, if you want to argue for error, fine, but don't argue on these data points. In all, there's 19 of those things. I'm not going to go through all of those. There's 19 of these articles, and they're signed by Carl F.H. Henry, who we talked about before, Bill Bright, who we talked about before, Hal Lindsey, who we talked about before, our Sproul, Josh McDowell, John MacArthur, D.A. Carson, Charles Ryrie, J.I. Packer, tons of different guys. Anybody who's anybody in this era of evangelical thought signed off on this sort of thing. Now, the Catholic Church said, didn't we already cover this? We already covered this. We already talked about this. 1965, during Vatican II, we wrote something called De Verbum. But its wording was a little ambiguous. And to this day, we're not exactly sure what it's getting at, because Vatican II said... The books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach the truth which, that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred Scriptures. And you go, absolutely. That's inerrancy, right? Or is that infallibility? Is it saying it is without error? Or it teaches truths without error? They said, the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see, to see confided to the sacred Scriptures. The question is, does that mean that the Bible has no errors? Or does that mean that when the Bible is talking about salvation, it will never teach you incorrectly? It is. And, that, and even the Catholic Church said, well, I think it's pretty clear. Because nobody wanted to come out after Vatican II, you know, like 13 years after Vatican II, and say, well, let me explain that. I'm not sitting on the council, but let me explain. It's like, everybody's like, oh, no, it's, it's what I've written, we've written. So it's still a little iffy as to knowing exactly what they were getting at. I'm not saying it's a bad statement. It's just, yeah. Is it inerrancy? Is it infallibility? Is it both? Good question. Speaking of the Catholic Church. 78 is also the time that the new Pope, John Paul II, comes on board and starts issuing a bunch of reforms. This is my Pope. I like this Pope. This is a cool Pope. First Polish Pope comes out in 1978. First non-Italian Pope in, what, 455 years? They've all been Italians. And, of course, the Italians say, well, of course, Rome is in Italy. God clearly thinks Italy is his country. And if you think that's ridiculous may or may not have ever heard somebody say something like that about America. What with the fact that you sit in America, right? God clearly has a special relationship with the country that I was born in, said everybody, everywhere, forever. In some ways, very conservative from a biblical, or from a Catholic perspective. He consistently preached against sexual sins like homosexuality and abortion and remarriage after divorce and contraception, and he even preached against sex between married non-Catholics. All those are sexual sins, right? 
It is a, okay, let's walk through it. It's a sin to have sex with anybody you're not married to. You cannot be married outside of the Catholic Church because marriage requires the sanctification by God. Only the Catholic Church can speak for God. Therefore, if you are married outside the Catholic Church, you are not married. Therefore, sex in a Protestant marriage is an abomination before the Lord because you're not married. I think I'm very clear. He has points for a logical consistency. Doesn't he? <laughs> I disagree with him. I'm like, ah, yeah, I see it, though. Thank you for being honest. Um, he also said, ordination of women? No. Why are we even talking about this? God is extremely clear in Scripture. Women are subordinate to men. Very loving toward women, but extremely patriarchal. So from Catholic perspective, John Paul II, rocking guy, right? Okay. He's also seen as fairly progressive, even liberal, from a Catholic perspective. At his inauguration, all the cardinals are always supposed to go up and kiss his ring. You ever seen that when a new pope comes in? They all come down, kneel, kiss his ring. When his old friend, a Polish cardinal, came up, John Paul didn't let him kneel and kiss his ring. Instead, John Paul went and hugged him because they were old friends. Now, everybody's coming and kissing his ring. His, his best friend, his oldest friend, comes up. Instead, he just steps up and hugs the guy. I remember my perspective when I saw this. What would your perspective be when you see this? How incredibly sweet! That's extremely warm. And you notice the guy's still trying to get down to that ring, you know, to to, hug, to kiss it. I thought it was an incredibly warm human moment, and a lot of people did also think the same thing. But a lot of the Catholic leaders, especially the traditionalists. And the Italians saw that as a slap in the face. Italian cardinal comes up, kisses the Pope's ring. Italian cardinal comes up, kisses the Pope's ring. French cardinal comes up, kisses the Pope's ring. Polish cardinal comes up, Pope has a special relationship with the Poles. All the Italians go, so I guess we're all just chopped liver, right? You already offended us by existing. And now you have the audacity to point, to rub our face in that. But they also, the traditionalists said, that is Horribly inappropriate. The office, the, the dignity of the office, the professionalism of the office just got thrown to the wayside. Because here, instead of doing what popes always have done, I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of Catholicism is based on tradition. This is the way we've always done this. This is the way we've always done this, and instead of showing your professionalism, you showed human affection. That's inappropriate. When I, got, when I, when I graduated with my master's degree, it, it, it actually meant the world to me. I went and I shook hands uh, with, with various profs as I, uh, as I got my degree and, and I was starting to walk off stage. The head of the department actually stood up and gave me a hug. And I, I just, it meant the world to me because he is like the most prickly, obnoxious guy. <laughs> and everybody was like, oh, he's scary. And I'm like, no, we always got along. And it meant the world to me that this guy that everybody else said was a prickly jerk made it a point to come up and give me a hug. Anyway. So John Paul also tended to preach in Polish <gasps> instead of Latin. You can't do that. God spoke Latin. Offended a lot of people. But oh yeah. I think all languages can point back to God. But 
God tends to speak in Latin, just like in a lot of Protestant, not all, obviously, but there are some chunks of Protestantism that say God speaks in these and nows. Duh! I mean, did you, did you just find yourself going, preach? <laughs> okay, but he also was controversial in that he really suggested that Catholics grow in their personal study of the Lord. I know, I know, it's crazy. So he actually encouraged Catholics to buy their own Bibles and read them. Which was huge. And Cardinals are like, what are you, nuts? You can't tell people to read their own Bibles. They'll figure out their own theology. They will be leaving the church in droves. Which is an interesting concept. But it was interesting to hear Catholic Cardinals back then specifically argue, if we let Catholics actually read the Bible, they will leave the Catholic Church. Amazingly, I personally found that to be true. An amazing number of people that I've talked to that left the Catholic Church said, have you read this thing? I actually started reading this thing, and I'm like, well, this isn't what we're doing. There's something to be said for that. 1986, the Pope put together a commission comprised of 12 bishops and cardinals to put together the Catechism of the Catholic Church. What's a catechism? Anybody know? Yeah. Yeah, it's technically, it, it's from the word catechao, meaning to, to teach orally, to to do it through calling out, through talking. Um, so the idea is, it's like a canned Socratic reasoning. You ask questions and the and students answer you, but they have to answer you word for word from what they're already supposed to have memorized. Yeah? They already had the Heidelberg Catechism, why didn't Because they didn't have the Heidelberg Catechism. <laughs> Other people did. But they wanted their own catechism. They're like, yes, we want our own confession. We want our own thing that people can go through. They already did have one of these things. But we're going to put it together in one comprehensive package that anybody can look over. That was new. And they've been doing this for centuries, but to have one, I got this. As soon as it came out, I'm like, I'm totally buying myself one of these things. Um, and it was a huge controversy, again, for the church. A lot of cardinals were like, you can't put, that's something you have to go through catechism class. Something that they have to learn from a priest. You're going to let them learn that from a book? What are you, crazy? You can't tell people what we think. You've got to tell people what we think. It's got to go through the proper channels. Luckily, the Catechism Commission was chaired by Cardinal Joseph Pratzinger. Remember we talked about him last week? This is not a guy to mess with. And he pushed it through. He's like, oh no, we're totally doing this. If you remember from last week, did you notice the little product placement of the Catechism of the Catholic Church in his hand in this publicity photo that he has? Yeah. So... This guy said, no, we're absolutely pushing this through. And then after John Paul II finally died, who became Pope? This guy! So you get this kind of one-two punch that helped keep this going. Now, Pope John Paul II reigned for 27 years. That's like one of the longest reigns of popes. And he went to all, he went, he traveled more than any other pope ever traveled. He made all sorts of significant differences in the world, changed the world, which is why within a decade of his death, he was already canonized, and he is now officially Pope Saint John Paul II. So, be careful when you're talking to people. 79, the most watched movie of all time premiered. According to the New York Times, most watched movie of all time is? Nope, that's 77. It's called The Jesus Film. 
the most watched movie of all time. You ever hear about this movie? Financed primarily by the Campus Crusade for Christ people. They're like, there really should be a, a good, biblically accurate movie about Jesus. It was made for a grand total of $6 million. They still use it. It's a big outreach. Yeah, we still have copies of it in our library over here. Made for $6 million, filmed on location in Jerusalem. Uh, they, 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 just, they wanted to do the whole New Testament, and then they decided they really could only feasibly do a gospel. And so they chose Luke because it was pretty complete. Most of the stories that people are familiar with are in Luke. And they used the Good News translation as its text because it's real readable and understandable, and everybody goes, <sighs> okay. The NIV is still new. It was still new. Untried. But the movie is... If you, who's ever, has anybody ever seen this? The movie is so scrupulous to the text that a lot of people, including myself, a lot of it's boring at times. It really is very slow. And part of it is because it, it, it just kind of meanders. Because, let's be honest, the gospel's kind of meander. And I say this as somebody who preached the gospel, and I love the gospels, but from a modern storytelling perspective, is there a beginning, and then character building, and then there's some sort of conflict between the boy and the girl, and then there's a nice little resolution. So there's a lot of, and then we went over here, and then this happened. And then we went over here, and this happened. Later, we went over here, and that happened. I'm not saying it's bad storytelling. What I'm saying is it's not the way we tell stories in a modern era, and I have never seen that more dramatically presented than in the Jesus film, where you find yourself saying, Boy, this isn't the way we would make a movie nowadays at all. It is, however, scrupulously biblically solid. They designed it to be an outreach tool, and they designed it to be structured so that you could dub it easily, so that it would be taken into other countries. Anybody have any idea how many languages it's been translated into? Guess. 25. 25. 112. 112. 113. 113. 113. <laughs> Why do I feel like Drew Carey? <laughs> 1,500 languages. 1,500 languages since 1979. It's been seen by upwards of 5 billion people. That's impossible to entirely gauge this. But when you're talking about the availability and the people we know watched it and the people we know showed it to other people, that's what Campus Crusade and the Jesus film people have argued. Yeah. Even if you say, I think that's a bit much, maybe only 4 billion people, but it is head and shoulders, head and shoulders even by the most conservative secular estimates, the most watched movie of all time. More people have seen this than anything. But in the 40 years of its existence, yep. Every few months I get letters asking me to support. I know. It's still going on. Yeah, still, it's still a thing. Um, 2003, give you an example. The Iraq war just ends, and, the, and Iraq is now open to Westerners to come and do things. And so they said, oh, we are totally taking this to newly opened Iraq. Because we can, right? And they're like, it, it, they, they tapped on a special introduction to it that shows that Jesus, the Bible, does not contradict with the Isa of the, of the Quran. This is the same guy. It's just the Bible is a more accurate depiction of him. 
But everything you've ever heard about this, this prophet Esau, that should just lead you to the next step of understanding who Jesus is. And people were incensed that this happened. Interestingly, mostly non-Muslims in non-Muslim countries. Non-Muslims in Western countries were the most frustrated by this. Why? That is exactly what it is. Because if you take the message of God, uh, the gospel into a nation that's never heard it, amazing how many people soak it up like a sponge. But in our Western culture that prizes never telling anybody else anything that they don't already want to hear, that sounds like the most offensive thing that we could possibly do. There were a lot of Muslims in Iraq that also were offended. But... And after the 2004 broadcast on the BBC, where the BBC on national television primetime showed the Jesus film, and one wonders, you know, how could 4 billion people see it? You know, in America, we did that, right? You know, one of the major networks just put it up there and played it for everybody to watch, right? No. Because America's a Christian nation. Anyway, but they, they, they posted thousands of comments from viewers on their website, including ones that said, just because you support Jesus doesn't mean everyone else has to. I wouldn't impose it on people in Iraq. There will be a backlash. You shouldn't preach your religion. It only causes problems. Which is interesting because that's an admonition regarding religion, right? As to what you should do about religion. So people can preach against religion. You just can't preach for religion. Well, all of this one. Yet another attempt by the Christian church to indoctrinate people over to them and steal their money under the pretense they're offering salvation. It's a free movie. No, nobody's ever had to buy the Jesus film. They, they hand it to people. The idea of using that as an example to talk about stealing money. I think it's right. Um, these people are so arrogant. It really annoys me when everyone thinks their religion is better than someone else's. Why don't these Christians convert to another religion first just to see how insulting it is before they go around giving the natives the benefit of their religion? Because that's what you should do. If you want to help convert people to your religion, you should first convert away from it. Trying to sublimate the dominant religion in another country is, if nothing else, an insult to the sensibilities and the belief systems of its indigenous people. It's exactly what starts wars in the first place. Which is, I believe, a wonderful synopsis of the way a lot of non-Christians view Christianity, view religion, view evangelism. You are trying to sublimate the beliefs and, 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 and sensibilities of somebody else. Aren't you? You're trying to say that what they believe is wrong and say that what you believe is right. Which is exactly, of course, what they're doing. Yes. But they can do that because it's what they think. But I think you, you'll find that there are a lot of people that will say, ah, this is what creates conflicts. And this is where we as Christians can say, no. Our brokenness is what creates conflicts. Our messed upness inside, that's what creates conflicts. What I'm trying to do healed through Christ. I don't want to create conflicts. What we're trying to do is heal the world that's broken. But sometimes you have to explain that for people to understand that because they're not going to come at that from a natural perspective. Even uh, a Dallas Theological Seminary prof argued that's uh, not such a great idea. He said, he said such a visible Christian presence right after the Iraq War could send the wrong message because people would automatically, indelibly associate Christianity with Americanism. Is that really what you want? 
we won the war, so here's our religion. That's the way it would come across. Everything that all these guys are saying on the BBC, that's the way it would seem to people. So he said, we're the ones who, here in America who think we have to do it. We want, every, we want to do everything ourselves. That's the image of the ugly American. We may need to get over that to truly distance ourselves as Christians from what is perceived around the world as a national agenda. If you really want to be heard as a Christian, you may need to distance yourself from your patriotism because your nationalism may be the very thing that is being a stumbling block to the people you're trying to reach. Interesting question. 79 is also the year that the Middle East exploded. Bizarre stuff. I don't know if you remember 1979 very well, but things got really weird over there really quick. The Shah of Iran, the emperor of Iran, had worked to westernize Iran, to try to, to change the system, change how things, very secular Muslim. And so he had developed very positive relationships with Great Britain and with the United States. We supported him. But he was also a dictator. And especially by the end of his rule, he wasn't a very nice dictator. Kind of mean about it. So Islamic militants led by a guy named Khomeini overthrew the Shah and established an extreme Muslim state, right? Very, very, very strict. Anybody remember the title that Khomeini had? Ayatollah, yeah. Ayatollah meaning sign of Allah, the exalted one who gets to decide Islamic law. So uh, he's the one who is a sign from God. Um, think of it like, like the uber Pharisee. I get to decide what all this stuff means. So the Ayatollah Khomeini. As part of that overthrow, they, they took Western diplomats and hostage, including a bunch of American citizens, until the Shah would be returned, because he, he escaped. And they really wanted him to be not escaped. Anybody remember the Iran hostage crisis? Yeah, they were released in 1981 after 444 days. Not a fun time for these people. It's also the same year that the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. The year before, they had set up a communist state in Afghanistan. And they were opposed by the militant Islamic Mujahideen. Have you ever heard of the Mujahideen? It's based off the word jihad, struggle. So these are people who, who are engaged in struggle. Now, because the Mujahideen are struggling against communism, because there's this communist state in Afghanistan that they're, that they're rebelling against, they were supported, supplied, and trained by the United States. Because we keep doing that, right? Did it in Israel, did it in Vietnam, doing it here in Afghanistan. The CIA provided more than $40 billion in support and trained a bunch of people, including a young guy named Osama bin Laden, to go over and help the Mujahideen. Because we wanted to overthrow communism. That's not going to come back and bite you in the butt, is it? No, not at all. That's the same year that President al-Bahir settled the Iraqi economy. Finally, things are going well. Made it into kind of a socialist state. And his vice president and cousin Saddam Hussein led a coup to take over the government. Not because al-Bahir was doing something wrong, but because Hussein wanted to control things. And his cousin had foolishly made him vice president. And what are you thinking? Since al-Bahir had been socialist, the United States supported Hussein and the coup because that's not going to come back and bite you in the butt at all either, right? The next year, Hussein, seeing an opportunity, seeing weakness in Iran, seeing increased uh, 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 Iranian extremism, 
he invaded Iraq in 1980 so that it would just be part of the larger Iraqi empire. And since it isn't, you understand that it didn't end up working. But we supported that. But so did the USSR. Both the United States and the USSR supported Hussein's invasion of, of Iran. Why? I mean, we're fighting over all this stuff. Why would we both support that? Yeah. So the Soviets are wanting to, 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 to reinstate a not strict Islamic state in Afghanistan, right? They're wanting to make sure that their communist regime stands. So the idea of having this huge, severely Islamic state right next door, didn't like that idea. Iran currently has hostages from the United States, and we're supporting Iraq, so of course we're going to support it too. So the irony is, we support the invasion of Iran because Iraq is not a socialist state. The Soviet Union supports the invasion of Iran because they want Afghanistan to be a socialist state. Strange bedfellows. So a lot of what we see today in terms of Muslim extremism and anti-United States hatred in the Middle East stems directly from 1979, from just even one year. It's also the same time that uh, that the, the Israel-Egypt treaty was signed, that, that Anwar Sadat got into such trouble for and ended up getting assassinated for. So all of this going on, and the United States helped broker that at Camp David. An amazing amount of stuff where the Middle East says, United States, why are you getting in our face? Why are you pushing your religion on us? A lot of this starts in 1979. 1983, Gospel of Judas was discovered. Anybody ever hear about that one? Gospel of Judas. Sold by a gray market dealer. Gray market is, it's not exactly illegal. It's just not exactly kosher. Um, dealer in Geneva. The Gospel of Judas is this third or fourth century manuscript written in Coptic, which is a later Egyptian script, um, in which we learn Judas was only doing what Jesus told him to do. Jesus told him to betray him to the Romans. So Judas was was just following orders. That Jesus had taught Judas special Gnostic truths. Nobody else knew but Judas. He's the only one of the disciples. The rest of the disciples were jealous of Judas, which is why they, when they wrote their Gospels, they made Judas into the bad guy. He's actually the hero. For instance, Jesus taught Judas that all matter is evil and all spirit is inherently good. Therefore, doing anything that focuses on matter, like taking communion, um, helping the poor, uh, and anything tangible, that's at least a waste of time, and at worst, drawing you away from God. You just need to focus on spirit. Isn't that what we've heard before from Gnostic teachers over the centuries? But that's why Jesus told him he had to die, because he needed to transcend this flesh. He needed to get off this planet and, and to ascend and be with God. And Judas said, no, no. And Jesus said, you've got to do it. He said, okay. And he gets in trouble for it. Gospel of Jesus. The world goes bananas for the Gospel of Judas. A gazillion books come out. National Geographic has it on the cover. National Geographic puts together this big old presentation on TV about it. Now, let's say this. This is finally an inroad into understanding the early church, the church that Jesus set up. I mean, because there's what the Bible said, but now we finally understand it. We see the real Jesus, and we finally, for the first time, understand Judas. Okay. But it wasn't saying anything new. What? Uh, 
course, it wasn't written by Judas, and it was written, what, three or four hundred years after? Yeah. Yeah. As if they knew what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, A, it's not saying anything new theologically. We already know what the, what the Gnostics thought. B, nobody, no scholar thought it was actually written by Judas. C, yeah, it was dated to two to three centuries after the beginning of the church and after Judas died. And it was written in a language that didn't even become a written language until one or two centuries after the beginning of the church. So the idea of saying, ah, this, finally, we understand the way the early church thought. You, you understand the way screwy people thought 300 years later. Is that the same thing? The people that bought into it, did they at least believe that those were just copies and um, that Judas did write it earlier? Was that even a belief? Some probably did, possibly. I mean, no scholar thought so. I mean, all the language used and, and, and all the theology, they're like, this is clearly later development stuff. But, um, but it's new and it's interesting. People love novelty and we love the idea that we know something somebody else doesn't. Have you ever heard somebody go on and on about this History Channel special they just watched? You know, you find out. The, 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 I, just watched, I watched this in the 12 tribes of Israel. Chinese. Seriously, I saw it on the History Channel. It's amazing. You know, because scholars now, there's this one scholar that has a big hair on the History Channel, and he said, is it possible that they were Chinese? Huh? Have you ever considered that? No, I've never considered that. Exactly. Stop. But we love that. You know why? Because we're still Gnostics. Isn't that exactly what the Gnostics said? You have special knowledge other people don't have. Isn't that what Mormonism is all about? By the way, you didn't know this, but Jesus actually came and spoke to people in the new world. You didn't know this, but... Isn't that exactly what Scientology is about? Other people didn't know this, but the inter intergalactic emperor knew once we're still Gnostics. We still tend to like the idea of saying, we know stuff other people don't, and that's what makes us holy. If that is what's hardwired, unfortunately, into our sinful nature, why is it, do you think, that people tend to assume that's what you're thinking when you're sharing Christianity? That you're coming in going, I know stuff you don't, and that makes me holier than you. Instead of, no, 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 no. I know where the life raft is. Just, just come with me. It's not that I'm better than you. It's not that I'm looking down my nose at you. It's, yes, I know something you don't, but here, now you know it. Seriously, just come join me. Do we come across like that second way, or do we come across like that first way? Stop and think about the way the world thinks about this stuff. Understand it, and you have a better shot of having them understand you. 1985, speaking of all this, The Five Gospels was published. Remember we talked about this with the Jesus Seminar? The Jesus Seminar, group founded by former Catholic priest John Dominic Crossan, had 150 scholars coming at things from a decidedly liberal perspective. Um, and, they, and, and they said, no, it's up to people to prove the historicity of this stuff. If you actually believe the Bible, you're the one that has to prove stuff, not me. I don't have to prove that it's wrong, you have to prove that it's right. So, they use non-canonical Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, or ultimately the Gospel of Judas, for the basis of judging Biblical Gospels. Because clearly, you can trust these Gospels more on account of they're not tainted by centuries of the Church thinking they're true. Which is why it's called the Five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the most important one, Thomas. So, 
we can figure out what Jesus actually said and did. And if you remember, they had kind of a screwy way of doing this. They used red and black colored beads, and they tried to decide the stuff that Jesus said versus the stuff he didn't necessarily say based on voting. Red, Jesus clearly said it. Black, Jesus clearly didn't. Pale pink and pale gray, it's iffy. So, if you read the Gospels, the way the Jesus Seminar suggests, you get things like the Lord's Prayer, of which Jesus said, Our Father. That's it. That's the extent of it. Anything else is problematical. We know he said Our Father because no Jew would say that, and Jesus was a rebel. So anything that Jesus said that's rebellious, yeah, that's what he actually said. So Our Father. He may have said, Our Father, your name be revered, impose your imperial rule because no Jew would have said that. Provide us with the bread we need for the day. Forgive our debts to the extent to which we've forgiven those in debt to us. That's it. That's the extent of the Lord's Prayer. Anything else, anything that agrees with the Old Testament, Jesus clearly didn't say, because he's definitely alive. That's the mentality they went at it with, which is why you end up with a Bible that looks like this. So you can understand why, in the midst of all this, you've got people doing like the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, saying, all right, we really need to make sure that we understand where we're coming at from this kind of stuff. 1986, Peter Popoff was caught in a, st in a scandal. Anybody ever hear of Peter Popoff? Okay. He had no formal credentials, but he was a televangelist, big televangelist back in the, in the mid-'80s, offered faith healings and prosperity doctrine and stuff. He, he, would, he would have a group of people, and he could tell you all sorts of stuff about you, with words of knowledge from the Lord. Uh, he, he was famous for telling people to fling their dialysis medication and everything on the, on the stage, throw away their nitroglycerin pills because they don't need them anymore because God has, has healed them. Which is good, you know, if God has healed them. But in 1986, a group of skeptics exposed this as a total fraud. He's not just a doofus. He knew full well that he's a total fraud. He's a con man. Many of the healed people were plants. They were faking their illnesses. They were pretending to be stuck in wheelchairs. They were employees. And so he would say, uh, I, I, I've healed your stomach pains. And they'll say, yes, my stomach pain is gone. And so people would throw their medications up on stage and give him lots of money. How do you sleep at nights knowing that you're doing this, knowing full well that you're a con man? <laughs> to show his prophetic powers, his wife and an assistant offstage would speak through an earpiece that he had in, and people would fill out cards of information about themselves before coming in, and they would read stuff off the cards. Okay, the guy in the back, he does the... It's like, I feel like there's a guy in the back that, that has cancer. And Randy would say, huh, I do. But he's not saying anything yet. He's, I feel like he's tall. And Randy would say, I'm tall with cancer. And, and he's like, I feel like it's somebody named R R. Ron, Ron, Randy, something like that. Randy go, you got power! He's got an earpiece. Skeptics actually intercepted the transmissions and recorded his wife giving him information off stage, like this, laughing about people and about the problem. Yeah, uh, that fat guy in the corner. Uh, it's just, it's just horrible people. Horrible people. Amazingly, even after he was outed, even after on national television he was outed, even after... There were whole specials about how he's a con man. The ministry kept reinventing itself. Today, he sends people miracle spring water from Chernobyl. Uh, you drink the miracle spring water. This is what kept people alive. I mean, nuclear disaster goes on, and people drink this miracle spring water, and they, they survive with no problems at all. 
Uh, he sends out prayer bracelets that he's personally blessed, and Aaron's breastplate medallions for a nominal contribution. He sends them to you and says, you know, send me you know, this 10 cent bracelet. And he says, send a contradiction, a contribution of 175 even $50. If you understand con games, you might think, well, that's not thousands of dollars. Right, but if you get, if you get 10,000 people to give you 50 bucks, you're making good money. He makes millions a year. The irony is, I don't remember Peter Popoff. I haven't seen anything about him in years. It was written up in the paper at the time. Oh, it totally was. But what was interesting is, this week, this week, we stayed up way too late watching something, and then when we turned off the DVD, he was on TV. I was like, you're kidding me. I haven't seen him in years. I'm talking about Peter Popoff this week, and he's on TV. He has reinvented himself specifically for the African-American community. He's like, this, I am, I am exactly what, we did a whole bunch of studies on what will affect African-Americans, what will persuade them, what hits the least um, educated, the, the, the most uh, superstitious inner city people. That's what we do. You just go, how does this work? How does this work? You do enough market studies, you can figure this out. Yeah. Um, one of the loopholes that a lot of these guys get through in the law is that you would have to prove that if he weren't a con man, what he was doing would have worked. So, so you go, I sold you a prayer blade. Actually, I didn't sell it to you. I gave it to you and asked you to give me money, which you did. So I didn't sell anything wrong. You just chose to give me money. And the only way you could prove that this is a, a dangerous, horrible fraud is if the prayer bracelet would have worked if it had been given by, you know, like, a real man of God. Then, then you would have been, but no, this guy's a fraud, and therefore, you're, it's, it's a tricky it's part of the law, but you are not held liable if you say, if you'd like to, please give me some money. Knowing full well that if I hand you something, you will tend to reciprocate. You know, here, let me let me help you with this, and you say, well, let me pay you back. And I go, no, you don't have to. It would be great. I, I really could use the money in our ministry for Jesus Christ could really use the money. But you don't have to. Here, out of the goodness of my heart, because I know you do the same thing, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm giving you something. If you'd like to give me something so I can continue ministering to people for Jesus, that's entirely up to you. 99.99% of the population are going to go, uh, here, just take a couple bucks. I don't want to sound like I'm decidedly less holy than you. You just gave me something for free. I want to help Jesus. But that was only the first. That's the one that kicked off this firestorm of problems in the 80s. Remember Jim Baker that we were talking about the other day? Tell that just Jim Baker fell in 87. The scandal that most people got into was uh, the allegation that he and another preacher had raped church secretary Jessica Hahn um, and then paid her off to keep her silent. Um, Clearly paid her off to keep her silent. Whether or not they actually did the assault is a matter of some discussion. But she then spun that into notoriety. She appeared at Playboy. She dressed in lingerie on Married with Children. She hung out at uh, Howard Stern's program. She did a bunch of MTV videos where she's like a stripper and stuff. It's like, yeah, you're a classy individual. But um, what 
what got him actually removed from office and removed from his, his ministry was his financial misdealings. He embezzled millions. He fraud, defrauded people by millions. He actually did defraud people in ways that get you in trouble. Because like he, he offered lifetime memberships to a, a luxury hotel for $1,000 a piece. For $1,000, one gift of $1,000 for the rest of your life, you can spend a weekend in this luxury hotel anytime that you want to. Sold like 10,000 of these memberships, 100,000 of these memberships. And then never got around to building the luxury hotel. Which means he never had to go through with it and made millions of dollars. So, um, yeah, he spent five years in prison where he wrote the apologetic book, I Was Wrong. Can you write a more apologetic title than that? I Was Wrong. And in it, he's just like, I preach prosperity doctrine. If you just believe Jesus, he'll give you everything that you want. You'll get that Maserati. And he's like, I, I was wrong. That's just wrong. It's unbiblical. And I can't believe that I, for years, preached something that is so flat out unbiblical. And now that I've been in prison, I've started doing Bible studies with people. I've started uh, helping in, in various prison ministries. I've actually read the Bible. I think, actually, for the first time, cover to cover. I've never done that before. I always proof test. And when I read it, I realize 90% of what I taught before was wrong. Now, whether you see that as sincere or just another way to make a buck, the fact remains the theology that I was wrong is pretty solid, actually. I want to show a little bit of grace and say maybe he came around. At the very least, it was extremely helpful to make those comments and to, and to try to teach stuff correctly. 1988, Baptist preacher Terry Smith fell. You may go, I don't, I don't know him. I didn't have a televangelism ministry. He was the pastor of Canyon Creek Baptist Church in Richardson, Texas, and he was caught shoplifting at a grocery store. Michael, well, that's not a big deal. But Inside Edition said he was shoplifting condoms for use in his multiple affairs with church members whom he was counseling. So, this got national attention. You may not, again, remember it because, well, he wasn't a televangelist. You didn't see his face all the time. But Inside Edition did a whole big thing. David Frost went to just picnicking on this guy. He's like, this is everything that's wrong about modern ministry. Somebody is betraying every trust they can have. Even after being publicly outed, he now pastors Victory Baptist Church in Rolla, Texas, 18 miles away from Richardson. Because people will always flock to people who can purport to help them. It's the same year that Assemblies of God Pastor Jimmy Swaggart fell. Now, you may not have known Terry Smith. Do you remember Jimmy Swaggart? Strangely. Cousin of rock and roll legend Jerry Lee Lewis and country music star Mickey Gilley. Both those guys are, are his cousins. And he used to be a gospel singer himself, became a, a, an Assemblies of God pastor, and founded the Family Worship Center in Baton Rouge in the 1960s. By the time he got to the 1980s, his television ministry was carried by over 3,000 different channels, different stations. Kind of an important, big, national figure. 1986, Swagger saw himself as a crusader, and he outed Assemblies of God Minister Marvin Gorman for having multiple affairs, and Gorman got himself defrocked. Not a good situation, but Swagger is... The guy. He's pounding the gavel for righteousness. 1987, he was pretty much the most, well, second most vocal person against Jim Baker. The first most vocal person was Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell arguing this is like the biggest scab on American Christianity ever. It's horrible. 
And he said, oh, this sex scandal with Jessica Hahn is just an abomination. And amazing, it's just amazing to me that an unproven allegation of sexual misconduct, that's what everybody glommed onto. The proven, proven embezzlement of millions of dollars. Let's be honest, those of you who remember Jim Baker and the scandal, is it Jessica Hahn or the embezzlement that you remember most? Is it both? Maybe it's both. Okay. An amazing number of people tend to go, it's it's the sex scandal that I remember. It's like, that's what Jimmy Swagger was pounding on. He's like, oh, this is just horrible. He argued that pastors should be paragons of virtue. Anybody should be defrauded if they do not uphold the, the values of scripture. Yeah, got on the cover of Time magazine. 1988, Gorman's still alive and embittered. And so he hires, uh, actually, I think it's his son-in-law, as a private investigator to trail Swaggart and ends up getting photographs of him with a prostitute at a local motel, demanding that Swaggart reinstate him as, an, as somebody's God minister. He's like, push things through to get me reinstated or else I'm going to out you for your scandals. By the way, that's totally the two guys you want, pulpits, right? Now, I will say, again, it's a matter of debate as to whether or not Gorman actually set Swaggart up. Did Swaggart set up, uh, set out to find a prostitute? Did he? Do, or was it Gorman setting every single step of this up? Either way, Swaggart's guilty of misconduct with the prostitute. But it's, from a legal standpoint, it's totally entrapment. But um, even the prostitute's testimony kept being very inconsistent, uh, very doubtful in a lot of the details that she gave. So it's quite possible that Swaggart was totally set up, still guilty. He publicly and tearfully apologized to his congregation. One of the most famous images from the 1980s is him weeping, tearfully apologizing to his congregation, to his viewing audience, saying, I have sinned against you. But he didn't go into any details as to what he did. He just talked about how he sinned, and he's genuinely sorry, and genuinely begs their forgiveness. A lot of people laughed about that. He's weeping like a girl on national television. That's just ridiculous. It was kind of ridiculous looking. Was it sincere? God only knows. But it is interesting how many people are like, oh, that is so unprofessional, so undignified. It's like a pope hugging somebody. With that level of transparency of emotion, that's just insane. I have no respect for him anymore. What with all that weeping? But the sincerity of his confession actually led the Assemblies of God to say, all right, we're just going to ask you to step down. We're going to ask that you step down and go through some counseling. Let's see if we could, before you re-enter ministry, let's see if we can work on this. They asked him to step down for three months. And then after they interacted with him a little bit, they said, you know what? We're going to ask you to step down for like about two years. We're going to encourage the church to pay you. We'll, we'll make sure that you, you, know, you still have a stipend. But you need to go through some intense counseling and work on some different things before you get back in the pulpit and start preaching to people from the Lord God. So three months later, he's back to preaching again, saying, oh, they told me I should step down for three months. I said, yes, and then we said two years. He's like, yeah, but God told me I need to be back in the pulpit. My people need to hear my voice. Which is when the, AV, the AG defrocked him. Like, that's it. Okay, we gave you a chance. We're going to work with you, but if you're going to utterly disregard what we say, we don't think you actually are sincere. Even if you were at that moment, you aren't anymore. So no, you're on your own, but... But it's okay, because he was on his own. 
He continued his ministry. He continued at the Family Worship Center. And in 1991, Swagger was again found in the company of a prostitute. And again publicly called out for it. And this time, he told his congregation and his new television audience that, the, quote, the Lord told me it's flat none of your business, unquote. I don't have to explain myself to you at all. It's between me and God. I'm not stepping down for anything. So he was asked to step down from the pulpit by his son, who was an assistant pastor, leader of the church, kind of person at the time. He's like, um, you know what? Uh, I think we'll take away from this that he's been through a lot and uh, he's going to go have a time of healing and contemplation and things. Which is okay, because today he continues preaching in various contexts. He preaches around the world, various venues. Teaches the church's daily television Bible program. Still in ministry. Never has really repented from that second one, because it's none of your business. But he's Jimmy Swagger. So the people that have adored him for decades continue to adore him, because we, we tend to continue in the directions we've always been, right? Cultural inertia. 1991, televangelist Bob Tilton fell. I don't know if you remember Bob Tilton, big Bob Tilton. We loved this guy in college. Texas, televangelist Bob Tilton, dramatic practitioner of the Word of Faith movement. Anybody remember what that is? That you can speak things into existence? You, you, you preach. In fact, somebody prayed for my mom the other day, saying, Lord, we know that this is what's going to happen, and she's going to be well, and the doctors are going to do this. And it was spoken very positively. That's the way the, the, the preacher, the, the prayer thought of it as, I'm being very positive. What she was doing was specifically saying, God, we know that this is what you are going to do, because we can preach this in faith. And if we speak it in faith, it will exist, which is why you need to say, God, I know that you are going to give me a Maserati. That's what you do. You don't say, God, please give me a Maserati. If it's your will, please give me a Maserati. No, no, no. you got to have faith and, and speak it into existence. And if no Maserati appears, either you've got some sort of unrepentant sin in your life that God is punishing you for, or clearly you did not have enough seed of faith and sacrificial giving for God to work with. You have to start seeding the process by giving to the Lord so that he can then give back to you. So if you want that Maserati, first you've got to give my televangelist ministry 50 bucks. Then you can get your Maserati. I mean, the Bible's clear, right? So Tilton would regularly break into speaking in tongues mid-sentence. And always look like he was in pain when he did. But, he, or he'd have a word of knowledge. He'd be talking about something and go, somebody out there, somebody out there, somebody has a pain in their side. They, they hurt, they hurt right, it's, it's not here, it's, not, it's right here. And if, you, if that's you, if you have that pain in your side, you need to call right now and give God the opportunity to heal you. You need to give us $5,000. I feel that that's the, the, the number that God is laying on my heart for you. You need to give this, if that's you, if you have that pain right here, that's needs to, you need to give God $5,000 and then he can heal you. He also promised to personally pray over every letter that was sent in, every prayer request, even sold posters that gave you directions on how to achieve a miracle in 21 days. And if you place your hand on Bob's hand on the pulp on the poster, then his own anointed power will flow into your life because that is a miracle point of contact. Because you are in contact of Bob Tilton's hand, and his hand is in contact with Jesus. Prime time live investigated and found that. He's got a mail service. He never even sees any of these letters. They open up their prayer requests and letters, take out the money, and throw them away. Unread. Never even sees them. In fact, they found more than five tons of unread mail in the, in the landfills in one Texas government investigation alone. Just to double check and see if any, 
Oh, massive fraud, massive fraud. Did he go to jail? No. Could, could you prove that if he had actually seen the letters, you would have gotten healed? Can you prove that you were that person with this pain in your side that he was talking about? Not that you can't prove fraud. Not that it's done that guy, but if the letters were open looking for money, how could they prove they were By him. He never saw them. He promised he would read every letter. And and people who worked at the at the mail center said, yeah, we never read any of those. So, so he was sued for fraud, but never found guilty because of what we talked about in terms of loopholes. He lost his show called Success in Life. He got divorced from his wife, basically imploded. Still has a ministry today. Still has a television ministry today. He can give you a special prayer clause. In fact, he says, call now for prayer and, and, and request your free miracle book, miracle cloth, and miracle oil, touched by Bob Tilton himself. He's got two campuses of his Word of Faith family church in Miami and Las Vegas. Grosses more than $24 million a year. So please understand when I say, after a generation of artificial formalism, where everybody says you have to jump through specific hoops, followed by hippie-inspired simplicity, let's all just strum guitars on a beach, followed by slick megachurches and corrupt televangelists, can you understand why, once you get to the 1990s, People wanted something a little bit more sincere, something a little deeper, something a little bit more genuine. So as the world entered into a new postmodern age, where you get past things like structural traditions, you get past things like logic and propositional truth, you get past rationalism and all that kind of stuff, and you get into postmodernity, this new emergent church was formed. This idea of, of being far less about truth statements and doctrine and far more about relationships and felt mystical connections. It's not whether something is capital T true, but does it ring true? Do you connect to God on a mystical level? That's what they're looking for. So in some ways, it's extremely informal, very non-traditional, this emergent church movement. Pastors wear jeans. Services are participatory to the point of being conversational. Pastor walks around with a coffee mug, interacting with people at tables while you eat donuts. That's the sermon. Very different way of looking at this. They make use of multimedia presentations, high-tech production services, etc. Very, very informal, very non-traditional. And in other ways, extremely formal and traditional. Much more so than even the 1950s evangelical church had been. Because they want to get past rationalism, they want to get past all that and engage in this multi-sensory mystical experience. A lot of emergent church pastors say, then let's get back to the mystical medieval stuff. Let's, let's do our liturgies. Let's recite the prayers of medieval mystics. Let's remind ourselves that sacraments are mystical conduits to God. So in some ways, the emergent church is a lot more traditional than evangelical stuff can be because they're like, we're reading Bernard of Clairvaux. We're, we're um, going through uh, spiritual disciplines and Lectio Divina that the, the Catholics have kind of put together. We're, we're, we're doing all this stuff, not, I don't want to attack, I'm just saying, I'll, no, just, I'll, I'll do it value neutral, specifically in this context because you bypass rationalism and you get to the mysticism that truly draws you to the world. So in some ways much more traditional, in some ways much less traditional. So within the emergent church movement there's trends toward this whole church involvement, personal participation, holistic worship of God and an abandonment of theology as a waste of time when you could be really doing something. 
So is that good or bad? Yeah! Good stuff and bad stuff in for mixed. Leading them to embracing doctrines like universalism. I don't like the doctrine of hell, therefore it goes away. Embracing perfectionism. You know, you can improve yourself to the point that you're perfect. You don't have sin because of that mystical connection with God. Embracing alternative sexualities. Who are we to tell people that that might be wrong? If, if God is love. So anything we do that loves is from God. Besides, there is no capital T truth. Only little t truths. Very postmodern. T.S. Eliot once wrote, Christianity is always adapting itself into something which can be believed. Once a culture decides they struggle to believe Jesus, we change it so that they, that culture will. More pointedly, Jacques Ellul argued, there's a fundamental difference between Christianity and Christianism. Between a relationship with Christ that changes your heart and a philosophy that dictates how other people are supposed to change their actions. So there's a difference between the kingdom of Christ and Christendom. The kingdom of Christ is us being a living embassy in the world. Christendom is where we control the government and tell everybody else what to do. And we keep wanting Christendom. And God keeps telling us to be the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. But the church, made up of messed up people, tends to reinvent itself to look like its culture. Middle Ages became centralized, had large ornate buildings with a throne at the center, right? Cathedrals looking like palaces. 1950s, it became focused on looking good on the outside, feeling comfortable with stable interpersonal structures. 1950s evangelicalism looking a lot like 1950s America. 70s, features guitars and tie-dye at meetings on the beach. 80s, it reaches out to the MTV generation by being the MTV generation. Now, in our postmodern culture, suddenly we have a postmodern church. Is it that we finally understand what Jesus has been saying all along? We finally caught up to the Bible? We only came up with the postmodern church after we had a postmodern world. Go figure. At every stage, we've argued we're changing to become more biblical. But often we're just letting the culture define our worship styles. Or, when we react against that, we say, aha, because we want to be more biblical. When too often, all we're really doing is saying, we're trying to uphold the last culture's church culture. And that's the thing. And we used to think, oh, well, emergent church, all this vapid, uh, let's all hold hands and do something mystical. No, we have to have this really awesome worship service where everything is done very excellently and done well. You know, actually, that's the last generation's view of that. Somebody else comes along and says, well, that's wrong. That's just what we did in the 80s. We need to get back to having a stable social structure and everybody being very buttoned down. And let's not talk so much about feelings and relationships. Let's make, you know, that's the last generation's take on this. I'm not saying that any of that stuff is inherently wrong. Just do we understand the difference between upholding biblical values and upholding a particular culture's take on biblical values? As a little argued, the church lets itself be seduced, invaded, and dominated by the ease with which it can now spread the gospel by force, any other force other than God, and use its influence to make the state too Christian. It is great acquiescence to the temptation that Jesus himself resisted. For when Satan offers to give him all the kingdoms of the earth, Jesus refuses, but the church accepts. We want all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus said, I already own it. So help me out here. How can studying history help prevent this? 
What have you learned from history? We spent years on this. The pastor spent years of his life on this. What have we learned from any of this? Anything that you can find. And yes, I know we're already 10 minutes over. This is my very last time of teaching this, so I'm going to go two more minutes. What has anybody learned from any of this? Yeah? God is sovereign, and even though the pendulum goes back and forth, he raises up somebody to help bring the church along and we can have confidence in the Lord, even though things seem chaotic at times. Oh, if there is one thing that you can pull from this, that is the most awesome thing, no matter what wackiness happens. Stuff where people say, this is clearly the end of the world here at the end of the ninth century. You know, it's like, God is still sovereign. No matter what the chaos is, no matter where the pendulum swings, there's always people, there's always truth that God holds on to and pulls back in. Even within the most bizarre, even within the emergent church movement, even within the seeker-driven church movement, even within the Jesus people movement, there are people you go, these people did it rock solid, awesomely well. You were pulling the right stuff out. Always. What else? Anything else? Yeah, have you noticed throughout history, it's constant how many people are like, and then I'll jump to this craziness or that craziness, because they're starving for truth. And you have no idea the people that you're around who are starving, because they may not look like it. So yes, share truth with them. Yes, one more, let's see. And doing it really well makes a huge difference in doing it it does. Now, I need to be careful because I don't want people to go, well, then I shouldn't do it because I don't want to do it messed up. What it does mean is, is if you say, I must build a house, I must build a lean-to or else I will die here, you go, okay, then do it. But do it well or else it's going to crumble. Well, then I shouldn't do it at all. Well, then you'll die. You know, no, you have to do it. But it behooves you to say, maybe I should learn to use a hammer. Maybe I should practice. Maybe I should read my Bible. Maybe I should read my culture and try to understand that. All right, I was going to say, instead of looking at the, the other lean-tos around you, read the manual. Too many people have either sat there and said, I know nothing about my culture and I do not know how to reach them and I will pound them with my Bible. Or they say, I will reach out to my culture and give them whatever they want to hear and I'll reference my Bible. But the idea of saying, I am always going to tether myself to the rock-solid, unchanging, inerrant, infallible word of God, but I'm going to reach to this culture in ways that this culture will understand. I just need to make sure that I'm not basing my understanding of Scripture off of this culture. I'm just trying to base how I express it to this culture, off of this culture. Let's pray. Wait, oh, I, I just want to say two things. One is, I think all of us in this class are so appreciative of all the time and effort you've put in. So, so I think we, we have a call card. Oh. And, and second, uh, we know you'll have some oh, it's more, even like a history card. more time. But I don't know if you have this book. <laughs> the history but, puzzle. This is the history puzzle, and it has pictures in it of people from way back in history. I can show you. And then what you to do is get a piece of paper and see if you can identify them. Oh! <laughs> and this, we got this in England, and it was actually a thing that you did, but it's over now. It was back in the 90s. Oh, so you can use your extra time to identify This will keep me busy on those overly warm summer nights. All right. Thank you guys very much. I genuinely appreciate it. Let's close in prayer.
Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for everything that's gone before. I thank you for giving us the opportunity to understand real life, the good parts version, so that we can appreciate where we're at right now and what we're dealing with right now. Help us to always try to put things in context so that we can place you into that context. Help people see how you've been in that context the whole time. Help us to be able to be your ambassadors to a broken world in our own broken ways through your unbroken spirit. Give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.